Hello and welcome to the Earthkeepers podcast. This podcast is for people who seek new and better ways to love and care for the earth. It's a podcast for anyone who is deeply concerned about the harm being done to the environment on a local and global level. It's a podcast that builds community and connection between people of like heart and mind. People who believe that earth care must be integrated into every aspect of life. And for many in the Earth Keepers community, that includes our spiritual practices. My name is Forrest Inslee, and today I'll be talking to Matt Ryan, who oversees the Talking Farm in the Chicago area. Now, one of my heroes is Wendell Berry, who is himself a farmer. In his musings about a farmer's relationship to the land, he wrote, Good farmers who take seriously their duties as stewards of creation and of their land's inheritors contribute to the welfare of society in more ways than society usually acknowledges or even knows. These farmers produce valuable goods, of course, but they also conserve soil, they conserve water, they conserve wildlife, they conserve open space, they conserve scenery. Matt Ryan is exactly that kind of farmer. Like Barry, he believes that sustainable, environmentally respectful agriculture depends entirely on a sense of relationship to the land and to the broader community connections around it. You're so close to the, as you're doing all the farming practices, you're, you're observing, you're watching, you're touching, you're feeling so, and it's very intimate. But it's not just relationship. One of the things that's nice about kind of the small business model it's not just relationship to the earth and sustainability, it's also relationship to other businesses and the community. Welcome, friends, to the Earth Keepers podcast. Matt, maybe you could introduce yourself and tell us a bit about what you do. My name is Matt Ryan. I am the farm operations manager at Talking Farm. We're a local non-for-profit, mostly focusing on urban farming. And so we're really trying to do two things as an organization. We're trying to educate the community on where food is grown or how food is grown and kind of the importance of local sustainable. Uh, we want to educate people on the issues of why local food is important in community. And then we also want to, we don't, we don't want to only teach about it. We also want to practice what we preach. And so we actually want to be a place that actually grows produce for the community. So we're really trying to do two things at the same time. I'm really interested in your story and wanting to know maybe how you got involved with the Talking Farm, but also what were some of the influences that actually drew you into this, this sort of realm of, of practice where you're engaging with creation, with agriculture, where it's become kind of a mission for you to educate people? I started as a volunteer with the farm, but prior to that, I was in kind of a, a job that I did not like. And so that really propelled me to kind of figure out, hey, what do I, what might I want to do with my life? And it was during the time of the uh, second Gulf War. And I was kind of starting to get down into politics and read about all these kind of different things that were going on in the world. And I just felt so small and so powerless. And in that, somehow I got hip to local food movement and where food comes from and how it's grown and the importance of that. And so my first thought was, hey, I can grow a tomato plant. And so we started in our church. We, we built a garden at church. We had like two raised beds. I remember it being a really big deal. How do, what size should the raised beds be? How What are we going to play? It was just like a, a lot of questions and all this uncertainty. And then it just kept growing from that. And it just really fit within my wheelhouse. I kind of came from a construction background. I was kind of hands-on. In my mind, it was a revolutionary act 
to plant a tomato plant. And it was something that I could do almost immediately. I, I could get started with the mission right away. I didn't have to go back to school, go to grad school, become an attorney, try to become a politician, go become a doctor. This was like right in front of me. And so I just started on that journey and kind of ticked away. And then here we are. How did you learn, though, the skills that you apparently have now and are teaching to other people? So I dabbled in community garden for community gardens for probably three years. And so I just learned by doing. And then I sort of all, I sort of figure out who's doing what in Chicago, all the different organizations. I kind of went out to them, talked to them, figured out who's doing what in the landscape. I started volunteering with the Talking Farm. And at a certain point, some of our, at that time, some people on our board of directors worked closely with Chicago Botanic Gardens. And so they kind of said to me, hey, if you're really interested in this, why don't you go to a nine-month certification program? And with kind of the idea that they'd bring me on once I kind of completed this. And so after I completed the nine-month full-time program in sustainable agriculture, urban agriculture, I got brought on part-time in 2012. I think, though, one thing your story tells us and maybe tells listeners is that there isn't really a high barrier to doing this sort of thing. Probably you would be doing this work anyway, even if you hadn't done the nine-month training course. Is that right? Yes. So, you know, fast forward all the way to 2000 to 2020, I'm a much different farmer than I was in 2012. We're, we're operating at a much more advanced level, growing crops, you know, more robustly per square foot with better methods, better crop rotations, succession planting, yields. So I got in, the, the barrier to get in is kind of low, but then there's definitely, it's a, it's a battle to be a farmer. There's lots of challenges. Um, we're, so we're growing on about three quarters of an acre, which is, depending on who you're talking to, it's, it's big or small. But there's just a lot of factors in play. And so I wouldn't have been ready to do that in 2012. But now I'm starting to feel fairly comfortable with growing at that level. So you call yourself a farmer, which I find a bit ironic, but also intriguing. Because where you live really is essentially an urban area. You're, you're part of the greater Chicago area. And I'm wondering, how has that role that you play come to be defined, where you have the boldness to call yourself a farmer, even though you're in an urban context, working a relatively small plot of land? Yeah, so there's a, there's a big movement in agriculture right now to reduce the sizes of farms. So there's a lot of market gardeners now that are farming on one acre, farming on two acres. There's guys farming on half an acre making livings. The, the idea that the farm has to be 500 to 1,000 acres is not the emerging reality. And so I think the idea moving forward is that you have you have small market-sized gardens, which are about an acre-ish, and you just have thousands of them. And they're surrounding city metropolises. So it might not necessarily be in city limits, but they're in rural areas not too far from cities. And just the yields are just so much greater on our production versus conventional. So we're planting each square foot anywhere from two to four times a season. When you think about big conventional agriculture, they might get two crops a year maximum. They're also doing monoculture, so diversification is not a part of their scheme. Um, so it's high intensive, uh, high yields, lots of turnaround of production. So I, I definitely think of myself as a farmer. We're working most of the season out in the fields. But there is kind of a, there's kind of a misnomer. I mean, I have uncles that farm thousand acres. I have a cousin that farms a thousand acres. When I tell them I'm doing a, you know, three quarters of an acre plot, they can't even register. I mean, their machinery barely even fits on three quarters of an acre. It's like two pad, you know, but it's a, it's a different style of farming. Market garden is different, 
much different than conventional agriculture. You think that's a good thing, this move towards smaller farms? Because conventionally, as we've probably learned, efficiency does have to do with size. That's at least what, what I think conventional wisdom is. So what is it about the move towards smaller farms that, that actually works? That's a good question. Efficiency is something that we're always thinking about in, in our context. The idea of having more small businesses with manageable sizes versus, I mean, so now with, with a lot of conventional agriculture, you need to scale up in order to make a profit. So you have to farm, you have to farm hundreds of acres of corn minimum to even make a profit. We're kind of saying smaller is better. If you can keep things more local, distribution can be closer to the source. You also get better versus conventional agriculture, you have to get better, better yields per square foot and also like prices per square foot. One of the challenges is, so if you did have thousands of talking farms, model market farms surrounding city, big cities, you would have a question of distribution and how you get stuff broken up. So there's been, there's been a lot of people trying to, to fill that gap and there's people who are basically coming in as a, as a middleman distribution for small scale farmers. And what they're doing is they connect just very similar to what middlemen always do is they connect you to their, they're connecting the produce to existing channels that they have in place, but they're focusing on market gardeners, market farms. And so I think that's part of the pieces to the puzzle. I'm intrigued by what you said about distribution, because if you follow that forward, there really are pretty big implications to the idea of produce being created around the cities close to the source versus shipping in everything from California or Florida or what have you. Do you find that that's actually becoming a workable system, almost an alternative to this long distance sourcing that, that we tend to rely on right now? So there's definitely challenges. We work with two food distributors that are trying to do that model currently. And one of them, the biggest challenge is that food prices haven't risen in like 15 years. And so the American consumer is still used to getting produce uh, for very cheap. And now American consumers now also more aware of organic produce. And so they also want it cheap and they want it to be organic. Obviously there's multiple layers to, there can be, it can be organic, it can be local, it can be sustainably grown. There's more factors than only organic, but there's, there's some changes that need to happen. I think food prices need to go up from what I can see. Food prices are as low as they've ever been in human history. And they pretty much stayed stagnant when the cost of everything else has gone up. So if food prices do increase, that'll allow more farmers to get into the game and maybe have a chance to make a living. It kind of reminds me actually of, of a similar dynamic when it comes to say the, the Walmarts of the world, right? People on the one hand say, oh, we want things that are made in America, so they're not shipped from overseas. And yet people are addicted to cheap products, right? They like lower prices. And so it's a trade-off. And so part of that is the educating the community. So it's not the same. The, big, the first thing you have to start with is it's not the same product. So a tomato shipped from Mexico to Chicago is not the same product as my tomato from Evanston to Evanston. Nutritional value is much more better in our products because it's closer to the time when it's been picked, harvested. Quality is better. I mean, currently the food that we eat is mostly grown for shippability. You don't see heirloom tomatoes being shipped all the way from Mexico to Chicago because they, they wouldn't make the journey. They wouldn't make the trek. It's just a different product. And so consumers need to know that as they think about being health conscious, and those kind of concerns, um, it's important to know you want to eat local because it's, it's going to be better for your health, also better for the environment. If it's if the food is grown sustainably, it's definitely going to be better for the environment. And that's just part of the education process. 
that's part of all this educating the consumer to think beyond just price. And then we think about, we talk about sustainability and climate change. Agriculture is a big component in that. And we want people to recognize that and to kind of put their dollar where their, where their hearts are, put their money where their hearts are. What is that relationship to climate change? What are the other factors that, that actually make a difference if we think in terms of eating local? Yeah, so obviously there's like the shipability component. So you have uh, transportation costs, fossil fuels. And if you're just, if you're growing kind of regenerative agriculture or sustainable agriculture, the farmer is going to be more concerned about water usage, about not using pesticides, about creating a farm that has biodiversity, not using as many herbicides, pesticides, and synthetic fertilizers. And so a sustainable farm will also be practicing crop rotations, will be practicing cover cropping. It's just a way, it's it's a different way to view your relationship with with nature. You want to think of it more holistically as opposed to what can the earth just give me? You want to deposit good things back into the earth and then in in return, it'll actually give you better crops and better uh, longevity. So we want, as, as, as farmers, we want to think beyond just the next 10 years. We want to think about what does the earth look like in 50 years? What does it look like in 100 years? So for the Circlewood community, we're always looking for actionable steps. And I think here is a, a clear one implied in what you're saying that isn't always obvious to people, that it can actually be an act of environmental justice and, and creation care even to think about the sourcing of our food, but maybe more importantly, more practically, to actually be willing to pay the right price, the price that actually reflects the value of the food. Totally true. And even if you can't do that for every single purchase you make, if you can do that for 10% of your purchases, 15, 20% of your purchases, that really drives change. I almost think it drives change as much as politics does because investors will see that and people will get into the marketplace. Economics helps to make change. And so if people see trends in a certain way, people will get behind it. Like for instance, the biggest seller of organic produce in the world is Walmart. And it's not, I don't, particularly think it's because Walmart has some big stance on the environment, but it's because they realize that that's what the consumer wants. And so that's the general idea. And so if Walmart shifts, that changes the landscape for the whole country because they're the biggest player in town. So, and it's like that kind of throughout all your purchases. So it's a good way to think about being a conscientious consumer. It's how you spend your money and it is making a difference environmentally and social justice in social justice ways as well. Coming back to this idea of the trend towards smaller farms, behind everything you're saying, to me, I'm, I'm hearing this theme of, of relationship, relationship to the land. Because in order to do all of those sort of more high intensity moves, that sort of understanding the climate and the soil in order to maximize yield, all of that implies really relationship. Is that your experience? Yeah, you want to, you're so close to the, as you're doing all the farming practices, you're, you're observing, you're watching, you're touching, you're feeling so, and it's very intimate. Um, it's not a farm that's a thousand acres that you don't necessarily, I mean, I'm, we're, we're covering that. We walk around the farm so much. We get to kind of see everything on a daily basis. If you had a giant farm, it'd be, it'd be impossible to do that. But it's not just relationship. One of the things that's nice about kind of the small business model, it's not just relationship to the earth and sustainability. It's also a relationship to other businesses and the community. And I find that part of the job super fun. We're selling to 10 different restaurants, to two different farmers markets. This year, we'll probably have about a 60-member CSA. We donate to a local food pantry. Those are all people relationships. 
We work with a local brewery. We do four farm to table dinners each year. We do a big end of the season party. We have about 300 people show up to that. We do seedling sales. So this is all community engagement, interaction, and relationship. And you don't get, you don't get that when you walk into Walmart. Well, I'm wondering if we need to go back actually to talk a bit more about what the Talking Farm does, the sort of core pillars of your operations and, and the values by which you you operate. You've mentioned business associations. Uh, you've mentioned briefly education, but in a given year, what are the major things that you, that you're doing? So the major things that we do is we we operate a three quarter acre sustainable farm just outside of Chicago. And that sees about 50 groups a year. We have an internship program, about 16 interns that come through that help work on the farm, learn all about sustainable, sustainable farming, how to. We have individual volunteer hours for community members to show up and get involved and have fun. So we have the, edu- we have the Howard Street Farm, which is our main kind of satellite location. And then we have three offsite locations. Each one of those has their own component. One's at a local high school. We've been partnering with them for about 10 years, Evanston Township High School. They have about 50 raised beds. They have a 30 fruit tree orchard. They have a school greenhouse. Two urban ag classes have spawned off of that. And so they teach first and second period. There's urban ag classes, which we co-teach on Fridays. Urban ag is what? Uh, It's an urban ag class. So it's agriculture. Urban agriculture. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then so all the produce that we grow, we grow about 4,000 pounds annually from that school garden. That goes back into the school cafeteria. In the summer, we do a CSA. So in the summer, there's there's obviously no school. So we do a CSA and we have about a 25 member CSA. We sell the boxes to faculty and staff at Evanston Township High School. And that generates about half of the cost of the entire program operationally. We do a seedling sale in their greenhouse where we sell starts to faculty and staff as well. In the summer, we hire seven youth workers to work the whole summer period. And then after school, three days a week when school is in session, uh, the students are out in the garden volunteering and working. So business is clearly at the heart of your model. And I'm wondering in terms of sustainability, how has that actually proven to be a workable model? And does it actually sustain the whole organization, your business connections, your sales, et cetera? So it does not sustain the whole organization. I would say it's about, currently it's about half of operating costs. Education programs and produce sales are around half a budget. That number can increase, I think, but as far as Evanston Township High School is concerned, that's a program that's almost funded by the sales and the business almost offsets the entire operating costs. Obviously they had some upfront costs when they first did the garden. So they put in fencing, they put in a water main, they built the beds, they had compost. I'm not sure how that's in relation, like it's been a 10 year partnership. So I'm sure each, you know, the cost of that spread out over 10 years. So they probably haven't recouped all their money from the initial investments, but as far as an annual operating budget for those gardens, I think we're doing pretty well. Do you anticipate that eventually it will be more sustained simply on the, the business practices? It's hard because we're doing so much education. And so I think if we were a for-profit farm and only with our nose to the grindstone, only farming, I think it'd be easier to have have it be a true business. But with so many groups and so many volunteers and interns coming in, it's going to be difficult. But it is nice to still have a certain amount of the operating budget covered by the business model. When we think about effective earthkeeping, we necessarily think in the future tense. 
Our actions now have profound implications for the environment in the future. As part of that forward-thinking orientation, it's important that even as we seek to become change agents ourselves, we must also make it our goal to raise up others to be part of the environmental justice revolution. To that end, education is key, key to learning the truth about where our food comes from or about the global food supply systems that work against the well-being of the planet. For this reason, the Talking Farm makes education a core part of its mission. In fact, the mission statement of the farm is to provide education, example, and hands-on experience to members of the community to expand awareness, importance, and availability of food grown sustainably. As we continue our conversation, Matt helps us to understand the importance of this sort of teaching that transforms perspective. So clearly, education has got to be a key value. And I'm wondering, what is that about? Why education? Well, that's so in an urban context, I think that's one of the big benefits of urban farming is that you have access to all these people and different school groups and the community. And there's also the big disconnect from urban areas to rural living or farming. And so we see that as a really good touch point. So we still think that a lot of the community does not know yet about the importance of sustainable agriculture and all the values that it holds. And so there's still a steep learning curve for society to get up to speed on, on these important issues, especially in urban contexts where people are so disconnected from nature, from where their food comes from, from bees, from flowers, from the soil. We have students that come in terrified of insects, you know, insects that are not even dangerous, that haven't touched soil, that haven't gotten dirty before, that haven't ever seen a tomato plant. It's very important for us to educate the community on why all these things are so important. In some ways, it kind of comes back to relationship again, because you can teach people the, the science, the methodology in more of an abstracted format. But until the kids get their hands in the dirt, until they actually grow a seedling and see it produce you know, some sort of fruit or, or vegetable, I imagine that it's a pretty distant relationship. But when once they have that experience, it probably changes their relationship, not just to the food they eat, but maybe to, to nature as a whole. Yeah, our experience is that when a kid grows the plant and then picks it, they eat it and they like it. But if mom tries to give them a tomato from the grocery store, they don't really want it. But if it's their tomato, they love it. Huh, so you're actually impacting their, their sense of nutrition and health as well. From education, we're doing, it's the hands-on education just from like digging in the dirt, using your hands, building things, growing things. There's all that hands-on education, but then there's all the environmental stewardship learning. We're teaching these students about social justice in relation to how food is grown and then healthy, healthy eating, cooking is a component of a lot of our programs. In some of our programs, we also build in a business development model where the students are creating a business model and they're figuring out how to sell produce through the community. What are the best ways to do that? So social justice is a term that you've used a few times, and I am thinking that that is another core value of the Talking Farm. What, what are your social justice commitments, or how do you see that value being expressed in the things that you do? Um, when you think about farming, one of the things that comes to mind for me is immigrant workers who are not being paid fair wages. And so we have a whole food system that's propped up on the backs of immigrant workers that are basically being exploited. One of the terms that they use is called modern day slavery. 
And so we talk about the students with this. Um, the tomato that you're eating from Mexico or from California, from Florida, could be being picked by someone who's basically being taken advantage of. And so we want to, one of the tenets of social justice and farming is we want to pay farmers a fair wage and let people know that it's important to, you basically have a, you have a food system that's, that's propped up on the backs of folks that are basically being exploited. And that, that needs to change. We also have health, a health crisis in this country. We have food deserts. We have people not having access to locally grown food or healthy food. Kids are going to school. They're eating potato chips for breakfast. Communities of color have a higher rate of type 2 diabetes, of obesity, of heart disease that's directly related to the food that they eat. I've heard it said that our, our generation, the generation coming up now, will have a shorter life expectancy than their parents. A big part of that has to do with diet. So it's interesting in this age of progress, life expectancy in America is actually going down. So it's, that's the irony. And a lot of these things are tied into food. And then you start to look at all the different issues related to climate change and farming. Fertilizers run into all of our lakes and streams and rural areas are polluted. Pesticides are being sprayed all over the country. Insect populations are dying. Food is, that's one of the reasons why I got hooked doing this was because I felt like with one stone, I can hit three or four birds. So it seemed like a really good use of my time efficiency-wise. I am intrigued from following your work on Facebook about this winter gardening thing that you've been doing. I've lived in Chicago and I know what winters are like. And so the thought that you were producing greens while it was still winter absolutely blew my mind. And I thought there is so much potential in this practice because if you can do that and extend your season even into the winter and start very, very early in spring as you have done, that really actually makes the idea of locally produced produce feasible because you're not limited to just the warm months of the year. Tell us more about that. Like, what have you actually done and, and how has that worked for you? What do you do to actually grow the vegetables in the winter? It's not as complicated as, as you might think. Uh, we have these structures that are called hoop houses. They're basically giant tunnels covered in plastic. The ones that we have on our farm are 30 feet wide by 75 feet long. And we have three of those structures. They're passively heated. There's no external heat heating source. The ground temperature throughout the whole season does never, never freezes. So the air might be 32 degrees, but the ground is still not frozen. You can do what we call kind of a double cover. So you have the big cover of the hoop house and then inside the hoop house, you have a secondary cover. And each one of those takes you to like a different zone. So you can kind of jump up two zones. And so we plant Traditionally, we plant the end of February, and we have our first harvest, April 1st, and then we can grow all the way until Christmas. But now, if you took it a step further, you can actually make those heated greenhouses, and that would allow you to have full year-round growing. So I know there's guys that I follow that are planting their tomatoes right now, uh, April 1st, in these heated greenhouses. I'm also curious about some of the things that are happening in the cities and even in Chicago with this idea of, of interior gardening, where people are actually converting warehouses and, and buildings into production kind of workshops or small, small mini farms. Currently, there's in uh, Rochelle, Illinois, there's a 15-acre greenhouse that they put up within the last maybe three years called Mighty Vine. And so they're growing tomatoes year-round, and they're shipping them to Chicagoland area. And in the middle of winter, you're, you're cutting through this tomato, and it's, it's red and juicy and, and tastes good. And so they've just cut out Mexico, Florida, California in the summer. 
now it's a bigger, much bigger capital expense and you kind of need real investors. But it's a, from what I can see, it's a business that, that's actually making money. And there's also another producer in Chicago called Gotham Greens, and they have these greenhouses on top of buildings, uh, but their greenhouses will be almost an acre in size. It's much more assembly line. It's much more, it's much higher production. It's it's kind of more of an exact science. They they know their true costs. And um, it's kind of like the Henry Ford or assembly line of agriculture. Um, whereas for us, it's a little bit harder to get our, kind of get a fix on true costs with labor. But I've talked to some of these guys and they're saying things like, our current our current price for production on a pound of, of leaf lettuce is uh, two twenty five. We're trying to get it down to two twenty, and that's like a that's a real business model. I think it's very feasible. I don't necessarily think those would feed these you know would feed all of Chicago land, but if you convert a lot of this current agricultural land that we have for for corn and soybean to kind of market farms, that would fill that would fill the gap for sure. Now, I want to call attention to the fact that we can all hear kids in the background, which is a direct result of this whole COVID-19 issue that we're facing right now. Everyone's at home and working from home and everyone's with their kids <laughs> if they've got kids. I'm wondering if you could talk to us about your response to the coronavirus. How has that impacted the work of the farm? How has it impacted you? As far as the farm is concerned, we've deemed our services as essential. And so the governor said, if you have non-essential work, stay at home. But we've deemed that agriculture and growing food for the community is essential and people need food. So as far as production is concerned, we're full steam ahead. This is spring, so we're, we're really busy. We're just not going to do as much education because we can't have big groups. We can't, all the schools are closed anyways. But if we don't, now is the time to plant. If we don't plant now... When summer comes and education resumes, we won't have anything in the fields to grow and teach from. So we're, we're, we're full steam ahead and we see what we're doing as very important for, for the community. We're probably going to increase our direct sales to the community and take a step back from restaurants. And so we're actually going to be getting food directly into the hands of the community. We also donate 10% to a food pantry. So last year we donated about 2,000 pounds. So that'll continue. And those are folks that can't, don't traditionally have access to fresh organic produce. So we're full steam ahead. I've been thinking about the talking farm and the work that you do, especially again, in terms of this valuation of local economy. And I've been thinking that, you know, in some ways to have a more localized economy, you're actually preparing yourself as a community for crises like this, because it means that you, you aren't necessarily cut off from sources that are more distant, that in fact, you have more control maybe over the production system and are more likely to actually be able to obtain food and not face shortages, for example. Do you think that that's a reasonable conclusion I'm making? I think it's 100% true and reasonable. I think when you overlay climate change on top of all of that, you need to have localized economies and definitely localized food systems. I would make the case that it's actually a national security issue. Most of our food currently is grown in California. California has been going through a drought for the last decade, long time. We need to put eggs in different baskets and they need to be closer to home. When it comes to everyday folks, obviously, you know, we've talked about how they can pay more attention to local food sources or where their food is sourced from. They can maybe be willing to pay the right prices for food, pay attention to the quality of food as well. But I'm wondering in terms of, of actual engagement with 
farming, with urban farming, with backyard farming, with gardens, do you think that there is possibility in people increasing that kind of activity to combat, say, this virus crisis? It's interesting. So it's springtime, so we're doing a lot of our seed ordering, and I'm calling our, our normal seed companies. Before you, when you call, the first thing they do is they hit you with a recording, and two of the seed companies that we purchase from mostly are saying things like, we're currently under unprecedented seed sales. And so everyone is calling these seed companies almost in panic, and they want to buy seeds and try to grow their own food. The only problem is a lot of the folks that are doing that also don't have any experience growing food. So there's a bit of a learning curve. So I've talked to some of these operators on the phone and people are asking, there was one lady that was asking them, can I grow blueberries in my living room? And how would I do that? <laughs> but as far as people growing food in cities for themselves, I think it's, I think it's very important. During World War II, there was the whole victory garden model. I think if, if push came to shove, you would see that pop up real quickly in urban areas. I don't think that it will be enough to actually feed our big metropolises anymore, but it's definitely not going to hurt. But I think if you just go just outside of city limits to all the rural areas, there's plenty of farmland that can be used for food production. Then it would just be a question of distribution. Yeah, I actually faced a similar problem. I was trying to order pollinating bees from my yard, uh, solitary bees like mason bees. And they're out of bees, out of bee cocoons. <laughs> so I, I don't know what to do. So if you know of a good source, just let me know. I, I like the reference to Victory Garden because that is about producing food to meet a shortage, but it's also in a way about community. It's about growing produce in a way that has the broader interest of society or at least your community in mind in the sense that that you're producing for yourself, but you're also producing for, for the general social need. And in some ways, I'm thinking that if, in fact, people move more into backyard farming, it probably has implications for connectivity between people, say, in a given neighborhood. One question that we ask all the folks who come on to this podcast has to do with hope. So my question for you is, first of all, what's one thing that actually causes you to despair these days? And then correspondingly, What's one source of, of hope for you, someplace that you find hope in order to carry on with your work? I would say current despair would be maybe the lack of the U.S. government's commitment to climate change or even potential denial of climate change. I would love to see the government a little more mobilized around the climate change issues. There's the potential for some pretty catastrophic things on the horizon that would affect people in the years to come. So some forward vision on that and some implementation of action steps by the U.S. government would be much needed. As far as things that are giving me hope, we work with a, a lot of young people, and a lot of these people are very inspired and motivated to make change. A lot of the high schoolers and college students see some of these problems, and they're taking the steps to make changes. And so they're really going to be the future. We can't tell you how many high school students we've influenced to become environmental science majors or to go work into farming or just to be in kind of the green movement. It's really inspiring to see these young people uh, take hold of these problems and, and go for it. The folks in the Circlewood community tend to be more action-oriented. They, they actually want to do something and not just learn good ideas. And I think they're often looking for that connection between their faith and the environment. In some ways, historically, that connection has not been something that's been taught very well by 
by the American church, the connection between faith life and relationship to, to creation or creation care. I'm wondering if you were to give advice to folks like that, what are some of the actionable things that people can actually consider doing as expressions of, say, social justice or even expressions of worship? Yeah, I think we touched on some of this stuff. How you spend your money, becoming a conscientious consumer is a very actionable step. It might not feel like, it might not feel very revolutionary or rooted in social justice, but how you spend your money as a consumer in America is super important. And so even if you dedicate a certain amount of your money to purchases that you can feel good about, conscientious about, that's a big start. If for some reason you can't grow the food yourself, you can pay someone fairly to grow it. You can come buy produce from us, per se, if you don't have a backyard. That's part of the reason why we're here. We can grow the food that people can't. The other thing is, from my experience, plant a tomato plant. That's a very revolutionary experience or action rooted in social justice and and in action. And so if you have have a backyard or if you have pots, start trying to grow as much of your own food as you possibly can or support a local farmer. I'm wondering also about the faith component. I know that the Talking Farm is not a faith-based organization. What is the connection between your faith and the work that you do? It's definitely a big motivator for me. One of the first commandments we find in the Bible is that in the Garden of Eden, God told Adam and Eve to tend the garden and take care of the land. And so I think that's what we're doing. We're taking care of of the planet that God has given us. And we're trying to steward the planet in a way that um, is sustainable, in a way that kind of honors creation. And then once you wrap into farming all of the social justice implications, the belief is that God is a God who cares about the poor and cares about people. Social justice is near and dear to his heart. And so that's what we're doing. Social justice is the major component of, of urban farming. We've been talking with Matt Ryan, urban farmer and educator at the Talking Farm in Chicago. If you would like to know more about his work, you'll find helpful links and resources in this episode's notes section. Earthkeepers podcast explores ways in which we can change ourselves, our communities, and our cultures to help us to care for the earth in holistic and regenerative ways. Through curated conversations, we highlight the wisdom of thought leaders and change agents who are making a difference and showing us a way forward. When Earthkeepers stand together, they amplify the impact of their resistance against environmental injustice and multiply their efforts for renewal and restoration. We invite you to support us by leaving a positive review on your favorite podcast platform. And please, share Earthkeepers podcast with anyone you know who seeks right relationship to the earth. This podcast is an expression of Circlewood, an organization whose purpose it is to cultivate transformative communities that love and care for all creation. If you'd like to learn more about the Circlewood community, please visit our website at www.circlewood.online or write to us at podcast at circlewood.online. I'm Forrest Dinsley, your podcast host. Our executive producer is James Amidon. Forrest Reed is our sound engineer and the creator of our original music. Our research assistant is Rochelle Nordman. Thank you, friends, for listening. And please join us for our next conversation on the Earthkeepers podcast.